Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I am thrilled with the guests that we have today. I mean, we've, we've been working on getting this episode for a while in the books, but now it's happening. So we're going to be learning about building, scaling, financing, exiting, all of the above. And without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Sajin Kodari. Welcome to the show. Great to be here, Alejandro. So originally born in India. Give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up there? How? Oh, it was a very different India, for one. This is in the 70s. I'll age myself proudly. And I grew up in Bombay, which is, as you know, the financial capital. It was a very quiet, sleepy Bombay comparative to what it is, compared to what it is today. Grew up in a very simple middle-class family. Everybody's an engineer, an entrepreneur, mechanical engineers at that time. So... Engineering is in the DNA for sure. I remember sitting with my father when he was designing his machines for his factory, and he would always ask us for input, uh, me and my younger brother, which was always a nice way to get the young mind flowing with ideas. Uh, I begged and begged for many, many years to get my first Lego set, and I played the hell out of it for eight years when I got it. It was the only game I had, which I would play like rush home from school and just keep playing. So no surprise in the eighth standard, you know, when uh, I discovered computers and programming, I fell in love because it felt like it was a Lego set with no limits on the number of pieces. I could do whatever I wanted. Uh, so, you know, from that simple entrepreneurial family background came the love of building and the love of solving problems. And lots of, lots of lucky breaks later, now I'm proud to say I've been building for all of my adult life. That's amazing. Obviously, problem solving, engineering. So I guess, what brought you to the U.S.? Because you came to Stanford and, and that changed everything for you. Absolutely. Uh, so every, every Indian boy at that, in that era definitely dreamt of uh, escaping to the U.S. if they wanted to have a, a career which was without any politics and without any bribery, corruption, unless you inherited a, a business from your family. In, in my case, that wasn't an option. So it was definitely the dream to just get going and living a better, cleaner life where you were recognized for your merits as opposed to the people you knew and what you were willing to do. Uh, so I think everybody in my engineering batch had this dream. Um, I, I was never shy of uh, questioning the status quo. So nobody in my college had even applied to Stanford from what I know. And I know for a fact nobody had gotten in. And when I told my friends I'm applying, they were like, come on, like, what's the chance, right? I said, yep, but what's the difference? The maximum they can say is no, right? An attitude that absolutely has come in useful as an entrepreneur many, many hundreds of times, maybe. So I applied and I was very lucky. I did well in my GREs. I had a senior year project in AI, which is now the hot thing, but this was 25 years ago at IIT Mumbai. I was doing well in my college level uh, rankings uh, and uh, I was in absolute shock when I got in. 
Uh, I remember screaming, probably the only time I've screamed in my life, uh, with joy for sure. And uh, that was great, except for there was one fact which settled in on, in a couple of hours, which is I had no money <laughs> to go to Stanford. No, I didn't even have money for the plane ticket. But, you know, I'm a big believer, Alejandro, that if you keep working, if you keep working and you don't worry about your failures, at some point, things click for you. And I'd had many, many failures before that even. Uh, too many to even recount. Maybe I'll write a book someday, A Life Full of Failures. That's a fun title. Uh, but everything clicked. I got about eight loans and scholarships, including one to even for the flight to one-way flight from Bombay to California. and. You know, after that, it was just me believing that I can achieve more, more, more. So that was the ticket to start my Silicon Valley journey. And uh, I was absolutely ecstatic and very, very lucky to be there. So let's talk about the ticket, receiving a ticket for starting things. So, you know, after Stanford, I mean, or during Stanford, you did some internships and one thing led to the next. And then all of a sudden, you know, you find yourself starting your first company. You know, I'm sure that you know, your family back at home was like, Sachin, you know, you got into such a good university, maybe go into corporate and, and do a little bit more of the, the risking side of things. But why did you think that the idea of Trapezo was meaningful enough for you to really take that leap of faith and, and go at it for the first time as an entrepreneur? So Alejandro, I'm sure you've had so many guests and uh, many from Silicon Valley, and they must have said this, you know, there's, there's an energy in Silicon Valley that is contagious right? Everybody wants to build and everybody has that excitement and that optimism that, oh, anything is possible. And the ecosystem in the valley supports that optimism. There are people willing to write you a check when you have achieved nothing pretty much. Of course, it's easier to get it when you've achieved something, but even when you're at zero, it's, it's, you have no excuse. So you're right. While I was at school, I interned, I was very lucky to intern at Apple just before Steve Jobs came back the second time. So it was in the dark days of Apple, and I learned so much about UX design. So my computer science master's was CS, UX, and then uh, entrepreneurship. So I learned so much about UX design. Then I worked at a couple of companies, the famous Silicon Graphics at that time. Now, at that point, I was building software or designing software for helping video game makers. Now, that was something my father could not believe. He's like, you're getting paid how much to sit and play video games all day after you studied all these years? I said, Dad, I don't know, but there's a plan here and I'm really enjoying it. So I think it's almost like I trained my parents to say, trust me or give up on me. I don't know which one it was. Uh, so when I started my first company, Trapezo, I think they were just like, well, this guy's going to do whatever he's going to do. He's not meant for the straightforward path. So I don't think they were surprised. Uh, at least they didn't tell me anything. And and the reason for Trapezo was straightforward. This was Web 1.0, the first dot-com days. Uh, a lot of my friends were starting e-commerce companies. My classmates had started Google, e-groups, uh, so Weather Underground, like a crazy number of companies. I didn't want to start an e-commerce company because I just didn't understand. That was not my DNA, selling things online. But the idea behind Trapezo came saying, what if we can build software which can help all these people selling things online partner with each other? And I started it with my ex-boss at the firm I was at, Frog Design. Uh, his name is Thor Mueller. 
And we just hit it off from day one. I remember when he was walking me to my welcome lunch with the team. And he said, quite innocently, what's your plan? I said, well, my plan's to quit and start a company one day. So I can't believe I said it on my first day of the job. But it turned out he and I just uh, partnered together to start that. That's amazing. And, and, and you guys were doing marketing automation there. And you even raised the money from SoftBank. I mean, back then, you know, the, the, the VC space was not as developed as we have it today. So I'm sure that it was a little bit different. But, you know, as they say, you either succeed or you learn because the outcome that you guys were hoping for, you know, you were not able to to get there. But I'm sure that the lessons that you got were even, you know, more valuable than, you know, than because you, you really learn when you don't achieve the outcome that you had hoped for. No? So I guess for you, you know, what happened there? Uh, what what was the breakdown? And then also you took some time to reflect and 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 what was that reflection and, yeah. and thought process like to lead you to the next thing? Absolutely. It's a great question. And I think many, many entrepreneurs would have gone through that that journey. And it's a very dark, lonely journey. Uh, in hindsight, you can reflect on all the mistakes you made. But in the moment itself, you know, it's 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 this whirlwind you're on. You're getting money coming in or you're not getting money coming in. If you're getting money, you have to spend it. You have to do justice to it. If you're not getting money, you're stressed out about it because you have a responsibility to the team. And I made so many mistakes. I made incredible number of mistakes there. The funny thing was we actually got the money from SoftBank after the dot-com crash. And we got a lot of money, $12 million. And we were actually starting to break even. But that was one of my other lessons. One is uh, my limitations and skill sets right? Because things had been on an upward track for me after Stanford, jobs, etc. So I just thought I was invincible. And there was a personal lesson of humility saying the, the world is not that easy. Uh, but the second lesson also was that sometimes macro conditions are bigger than you. Because of the dot-com crash, there was nothing we could do, even though we were doing better as a company than ever before. But just there was no light at the end of the tunnel. So we had to do the best we could as a company to get out of it, to get our investors something. And it was a very hard lesson for me to take. I was very upset. I was very resentful because I was so tied emotionally to the company. But I think there were wiser people than me in, on the board who said this is the only path. And, and we had to take it. And I know I took a year off to just reflect on where I'd gone wrong, what I loved doing in that journey, what I hated doing in the journey, so that I could build better the next time around. One of the best years of my, of my life, because my daughter was born that year. That's it. That's the biggest success, without a doubt. Now, they say that kids, you know, they're like startups too. You know, however, you know, there's no exit and you only break even with it late you sleep at night. So, uh, <laughs> Yeah. Now, 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 in this case, you know, for you, Sajin, you took that time to reflect, you know, and, and then, you know, to think about other ideas, you know, and one thing led to the next. And then all of a sudden you find yourself, you know, pushing what would eventually become a massive success, citrus payments. So give us the, uh, the, the way that, because especially coming from, from such a fall, I'm sure that you really thought this, you know, big time. Absolutely. So, you know, there was a big uh, gap in the middle where I said, as I said, I reflected a lot on the things I liked, what I didn't like, what I was good at, what I wasn't good at. I decided to work on my strengths, most importantly. And for about eight years, I had a very hands-on consulting business in the Valley where I had clients as big as Yahoo, America Online, Cisco, and very small startups. 
And the reason I did this was, Alejandro, that I realized my passion was in building software uh, and building great design software. And since I'd been the CEO of Capizo, I'd learned a lot of business lessons as well. So this trifecta was very powerful, speaking to the business stakeholders, speaking to engineering teams, but also speaking to product design teams, which represented the user. So I said, this is my skill set. This is what I want to hone more and more. So in those eight years, each of the projects was typically six months to one year. So very deep dive, hands-on. And I really, I think, honed my skills on all three areas. So cumulatively, once I think I counted that the work I did, along with the teams I worked with, uh, touched 100 million users across 50 countries. So that's a pretty big impact as a learning thing as well. So those things combine. And along with that, I, I had to work on my user interface on how I worked with people. Uh, uh, you know, it's it's when you're when you're the CEO or the boss too early, you you don't just know you haven't come through the ranks to understand the lesson. As a consultant, because I had no political agenda in any of the companies, I couldn't get a promotion. I was always trying to do my best work, but it also meant I had to deal with very different people with different different priorities, different agendas, different styles. And I think those eight years without any pressure of of needing to needlessly please somebody, but at the same time not pissing off people, at the same time not having any power over them, I think really helped my people skills as well and my style of management. So all of that led to a a leap of confidence, and it also coincided with a very special time in Indian history and my history where one day we just decided because my daughter was young What's the point of staying in Silicon Valley? My journey here seems to be plateauing in the sense it's not that exciting anymore. Let's just go back to India and live an adult life there. I landed in India and I said there are three main areas that, that are worth solving for here. One is civic causes uh, because of all the problems I mentioned earlier. Second is anything around uh, digital payments because everything was mostly paper-based that time. When I moved, I was shocked. Everything needed forms, lines, checkbooks, etc. And third was real estate. So I played around with the real estate part. I didn't have the courage to deal with the civic system. The real estate part became too hairy and dirty with so much black money. So then I settled on, on payments. And that was the genesis of Citrus Payments. So what ended up becoming the business model of uh, Citrus Payments? So Citrus Payments uh, had two legs at the very start, and then we expanded dramatically. One was the fact that in India, there's a very unique uh, set of payment options that are available. Apart from your typical credit card, debit card, we have things such as net banking, uh, which is a direct debit from your bank, which can come into the merchant's account via the aggregator. Those needed individual pipes to be built with each bank. As we progressed in the journey, more and more payment options came up, prepaid wallets, UPI, et cetera. So India is not as clean as the West in the sense if you just connect a credit card processor, you're done. There's a lot more going on there. So that was one angle of kind of the infrastructure play. And on top of that, very excitingly, and we were the first in the country to do this, was we wanted a unified checkout layer across all of our merchants. Very much like the PayPal experience in the West, but of course, localized for India. 
And this sounds easy conceptually, but it was really hard to launch Alejandro because each merchant was so possessive about their user data. They're like, we don't want it going in any centralized database. And we had to work very hard to explain to merchants saying, this is a n times benefit situation. If you get 1,000 merchants, each one of you benefits from 999 of the others who've brought in users because everybody's checkout becomes easier. So your, your drop-off rate, abandoned cart rate goes, goes down ridiculously. And we were very fortunate that the right wave of e-commerce was happening, online payments was happening, online businesses was happening, that we, the right merchants loved this idea. We lost a couple of big accounts who refused to use it. Uh, we made sure they regretted it later. Uh, but that was, I think, our main thesis over the three existing competitors who were there. Hey, guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So. I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Severson to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. And obviously for the company, you guys raised a, a bit of money. I mean, you raised a little bit over 30 million prior to the acquisition. And one pattern that, uh, that I've seen here you know, with you is that you've been able, you know, always to get incredible people uh, to get around you. I mean, you've on the first one, you know, on the investor side, you know, you got people like SoftBank on on Citrus payments. You got people like Sequoia, uh, and and basically, you know, those are like super tier one, you know, investors. How did you manage to get those investors on board, especially coming from you know the previous you know experience, you know, the previous company that wasn't you know uh, the outcome desired. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, so it's SoftBank, I think it was without any credentials of either success or failure. So we were very proud of that as a team. I think it was, again, the timing of the market saying the dot-com market had collapsed. So there was value in software infrastructure. And that's exactly where we were. And that really helped. And of course, the VC on the other side, uh, we had the very, very well-known ID Roizen on our board. Uh, one of the top entrepreneurs of Silicon Valley, uh, and she took a leap of faith on us as well. 
So that, that's absolutely needed. In the case of uh, Citrus, I think uh, it was me and another partner who conceptualized it, and then we had a third partner join. Uh, but we, me and the other senior partner, we just said one, on day one, we are just going to fund the company. Let's not worry about the money. Let's go fund it ourselves to, because we have confidence this will grow. I think that confidence comes from having experience in the startup space and that domain. Uh, I think when you approach everything with that confidence, a lot of things align for you. Uh, Sequoia loves loves payments, of course. They are the original investors in PayPal, Klarna, uh, Stripe, everybody, right? So they understood it very well. So when we met with Mohit Bhatnagar, uh, he said, I get it. Uh, I remember a very, very key moment when we met with him. And he said, I get it. I'm going to give you a term sheet. But I think you guys are asking for too little. I think you're going to need more money. It's, and he was right, of course. And this was just our first, uh, after our angel investment from ourselves, our first check where I think we were asking for 600K and he just gave us 1.8 million. He said, you, if you want to build this, build fast, build it securely, it's payments, security, reliability, robustness is very important. Do it the right way. Uh, so again, his experience paid out and that was amazing. And then we went on to raise with some amazing people again, like B-Next, Teru Sato. Uh, we were his second investment in India. Uh, and now he runs B-Next, which is five, six funds all over Southeast Asia and Japan. They turned out to be incredible partners because they got us some strategic investors from Japan who were running a payment gateway there as well. So, you know, the dominoes start clicking uh, together. And I think overall, we raised actually a little bit less than what you mentioned. I think we, about 25 million, if I'm not Got wrong. It. But an amazing outcome because eventually, you know, one thing led to the next. And, you know, you guys were doing about 20 million users, processing billions in payments, and then pay you comes knocking. So how was that uh, process? This would be your first exit, your first acquisition. So right. I'm sure that that was nerve wracking. So how was it uh, going through that process? So, so there's a bit of a backstory there, right? And uh, I'll, I'll fill you in now. It's easy again to share it. So a couple of things that happened during the journey of Citrus Pay that helped lead to this. One is on, in the early days, we were getting our socks knocked off by PayU because they were being paid. They were subsidized by the parent company, which had deep pockets. And we were a startup with very finite money. So e-commerce in India was heating up. And every e-commerce account, PayU was winning by undercutting us on rates. So I remember we had one meeting where we just said, we can't win this war. We don't want to sell at negative unit economics. So we actually strategically changed directions. And we said we will not touch e-commerce. Anyway, our simplified checkout layer was better for repeating transactions. So we said, why not we go for all the things that Indians buy regularly? So movie tickets flights, bill payments, all of these are the things you have to do regularly versus do I shop on this website or this website. So that we did a non-e-commerce target segment. What it did was it made us very, very complementary to what PayU's portfolio was. Just for survival. It wasn't just thinking, oh, they will acquire us. This, for, this was for survival. The second thing we did is we saw, I remember we were in Vietnam for, for some conference, and I remember just seeing some data point flash on somebody else's slide saying India is 2% mobile and 98% desktop transactions. 
And I said, ah, that makes sense because that was what our data was. But what we realized is it was a very tiny market and everybody we knew in India was buying a smartphone. This was 2012, 13. And that is where the future transactions were coming from. So what we did was I, uh, when we went back, I called for a general brainstorming meeting with, with actually the Sequoia people, our senior sales guys, everybody. And I said, guys, we need to push hard into mobile. And I don't have the data to back it up. It's only 2%. But the trend is very inevitable. And rightfully, everybody pushed back quite a bit. And we went back and forth with the discussions. But we went with it. And we were the first in the country to build out an entire mobile, uh, mobile SDK for checkout. Uh, so, uh, you know, an example of where your instinct and experience kicks in and it's validation. Sales guys negotiated with us and said, we're not going to hit our quotas if you make us sell mobile. And we said, OK, that's fine. Uh, and this, again, was a very strong compliment to PayU because PayU did not have that mobile focus. So that came in. And third was the lightweight part. At Money 2020, uh, 2015, Copenhagen, uh, a, a friend of mine told me, hey, there's a party being thrown by PayU. Do you want to come? I'm like, I'm, I don't think I'm invited. We are, we are giving them a hard time in India. <laughs> he said, come on, I can't sneak in. It's a party, right? I sneak in. And at that time, the CEO was Laurent. And I introduced myself quite cheekily. I said, Laura, I'm the guy who's giving you sleepless nights in India with my team. And Laura said, ah, it's you. And we just hit it off. And then he was showing me the things that he loved in, in UI patterns, et cetera, at the party itself. And at the end of the night, he's just like, tomorrow, I would love to have a glass of wine with you. Are you up for it? And I said, of course. And I show up for the glass of wine, and he's brought his entire top executive team. Uh, wow. Like, all right, this is a different agenda. Yeah. And that just was the seed. It took them a long time being a big company. Uh, this was early 2015, 2016. Then to start coming around more formally via investment bankers who were connected to them as well. And then, then the deal started taking place. And it was definitely a tense, tense situation because everybody wasn't even sure whether we should sell. We were doing well. We were doing $2.5 billion in payments in five years. And everybody's like, why do you want to sell? And I remember just talking to each stakeholder individually and saying, guys, this is a life-changing amount for ourselves, for our team members. By the way, everybody in our team had ESOPs from the office boy upwards. Uh, so, and in India, we don't have a strong history of M&A. Uh, we really should, should take this. And by the way, that reckoning was also right because this was 2016. And seven years later now, that is still the biggest all cash deal in India. That's amazing. And it was how much? It was 130 million straight all cash. That's a lot of zeros. So it what was does, a lot of uh, zeros. <laughs> what, 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 what does someone that goes you know, to, from India to the U.S. With, without, without money, no money for the plane ticket, you know, having to scramble and figure out, you know, things to, to really having that kind of exit. I mean, what, what was the first thing that you did, you know, when you finally had, you know, those yeah. zeros in your account too? Well, I, I, to be honest, I did not do much because by then I'd made my peace with the fact that there are a lot of things that make me happy. Money is an important part of that, but there are a lot of other things as well. And I was very fortunate that consulting business that I mentioned had made me quite a bit of money. It had helped me buy my dream house in Bombay on a mortgage, but I still was living my dream house. Found a lot of joy in my daughter, in my friends. Uh, I love cars. So even before the exit, 
I just said, okay, you've worked hard. Uh, for my birthday, I just gifted myself a very fun car. Uh, so the, I think the biggest, I jokingly say this, but it's true, the biggest impact that Exit actually had in my lifestyle is I didn't have to worry so much when I was booking flights and hotels too late. I, I was like, oh, okay, you can afford it now. It's okay if it's a little <laughs> higher. <laughs> so now, now, now you were able to procrastinate. I love that. Exactly. Love exactly. That. Okay. So, so now let's shift gears here because, you know, it took really not, not a long time, you know, for you to, um, to close this uh, transaction and then to go at it again. And now that's what you're doing with Cube. So walk us through Cube because now at this point, you know, you've, you've done, you know, quite a few companies and, you know, you really understand, you know, when an idea has legs or not, you know, achieving product market fit, all of the above. Uh, why Cube? Yeah. So there are two kinds of entrepreneurs, right? The, the smart ones who, who understand a domain, build all their network and connections in that domain and keep building one company after another in that one, right? And I think those are the smart ones because they can keep scaling up to bigger and bigger companies. Once you're a payments expert, you become build one company, another one, another one. Uh, and then there are the idiots like me who, who think life is short. Uh, doing the same thing again and again is not living a full life. It's not exciting enough. So each of the companies I've done is different. Cube, I mean, it's still in fintech, but it has nothing to do with Citrus because it is wealth tech. And the problem statement is something that I faced again growing up my entire team phase growing up, which is if you're a middle-class person anywhere in the world, let alone India, nobody guides you or helps you on to get on the track of financial freedom. You can do a lot of research on your own. Your bank guy will try and sell you some stuff. Somebody will try and sell you stuff, but nobody takes it as their core responsibility saying, I will help you get there in 20, 30 years. And this is a problem statement that resonated deeply with me when I was young because I had insecurity around money because we didn't have money. Each time my dad and mom, hardworking people, tried to put money in the stock market, it was always too late when the market was at the top. They didn't do it in a disciplined way because nobody taught them, right? And I saw that story repeat again and again. I started investing my own money in dollars at an early age uh, when, when I was in the US. I made so many mistakes because I was reading Forbes magazine, reading articles. And, and obviously, the people who manage money are smarter than me, right? This is what they do. So this problem statement gravitated towards me. And I said, okay, maybe this is my last company. I want to build something that lasts the ages well beyond me. Why? Because it has purpose. Something in the likes of, you know, what, what Fidelity does or what uh, even a Costco does in a very different way, right? So we, we look at these models as opposed to a Netflix. I say okay, what if we could build a very simple platform that helped everyday people understand finance without the jargon, find very high quality products without needing to do their own research because we've done that for them, very simply onboard into the right portfolio mix and then track it with very simple terms, as simple as this is how much your portfolio is worth and this is your profit or loss. Literally the two things I care about, right? I don't care about anything else if I'm an average person. And if we were to build this system and we wanted to build a long-term company, how do we make it also a profitable company? Uh, so this is the mission of Q. We service Indians across the world. We've got many, many people asking us if we can do it for other countries because they love it. We don't have the bandwidth, but hey, who knows? Maybe you find the right partner someday who can take, take this with us. And we, we manage about 2,000 portfolios. We have an 
incredible retention rate of 82% five years now out. So people, once they trust us, they don't leave us and we take that very seriously. We do our best. And we have a very unique proposition in the company. Me and my team always invest our personal money in every product we show into in, to our customers. And this is what keeps us honest. We are literally eating our own dog food. Um, well, it's not literally. Sorry, that's the wrong use of the word, but you know what I mean. So yeah. I love it. My team is very passionate towards a long-term goal of doing this the right way. We have a value system we call the 3i value system that I instill when we started it because India has a way, a very famous term called jugad, which means, oh, ways to get around things, which is nice, but it's also used as justification to bend the rules. And we said we are not going to do that. So our 3i system is integrity, intelligence, intensity. So, but number one is always paramount. Whatever we do, we want to sleep well in the night. We want to take care of our users. So very happy to report after, after doing this, we are just entering our fourth quarter of cash flow positive in a, in a, and with a nice, nice roadmap of where we want to go from here. That's fantastic. Now, imagine you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of Cube is fully realized. What does that world look like? I think for me, that would be one of the happiest days of my life because it would mean that all the hardworking people I've met in my life, everybody, right? It can be from a waiter to an engineer to, to somebody who's an artist. We've helped them uh, get to a level of comfort, of mental peace as they, as they keep working year after year, not just for them, but for their families, for their children, because... Alejandro, there are so many good, easy ways, clean ways to make money in the world. The problem is nobody wants to tell them to you unless they are earning a fat commission. And, and if we can break that cycle and we can help all these people say, laugh a little bit more, you know, enjoy the nice bottle of wine a little bit more because they know they didn't get lucky in some crypto gamble or in Las Vegas, but they actually plan their steps properly using Q to, to get there. That would make me the happiest. But working hard, making money, and then suffering uh, around worries for money is absolutely unfair, and it's a very solvable problem. I love that. Now, you've obviously done a few companies at this point, so let me let me bring you back in time. Let's put you into the time machine. Let's bring you back in time to that moment where you are in Stanford. You have innovation happening everywhere around you. You have all your classmates going, starting their own companies, all of that good stuff. And you have the opportunity of having a sit down with a younger self, with that younger Sachin. And you're able to give that younger self one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Ah, uh, you asked this question. I literally have, have goosebumps on me right now. Because, you know, I, I have no regrets in life, right? Whatever I had to do in the moment was because of the situation. But very often I think back to school and I think if, if I had to do it all over again, I would do it very differently going back to Stanford. And, and again, I have reasons why I did it the way I did. As I said, I had a lot of insecurity around money. So I had to rush through school to pay off debts, have money. And what I did was I was just studying like crazy. I had my uh, work, uh, and I was not focused on getting the maximum that that amazing place can offer. So uh, my famous stories are, once I was cycling in the late evening, 
And I saw, just saw a sign which said free pizza. So I braked, I locked the bike. I said, okay, dinner's taken care of. And there was this guy talking on stage. I was like, oh, when will he stop talking? Because that's when they serve pizza. And it turned out it was Jeff Bezos. But I just took the pizza and went home. <laughs> I just like, dude, I can't talk here or anything else. Literally, so the computer science department, another story, used to have something called TGIF. Because they were, they were like, these are smart people. They should interact with each other. Let's give them some food, some, some wine, and they'll talk. I used to go every Friday evenings to eat the free cheese, drink the free wine, and go back to study. While literally behind me, two guys, Larry Page, Sergey Brin, were saying, oh, man, search is broken. We have to fix it. These are some ideas. And I was like, guys, you're geeks. I'm just going to go home after this, after this free food. So if I could change it, I would take way more time. I would have more confidence in myself saying, Satin, you put in the hard work. You're on the right track. Slow down. Take everything beyond just the classes, which are amazing, that this place has to offer. Meet more amazing people. Be inspired by them. Who knows? Maybe you work with them. Maybe you work for them. Doesn't matter. You, this is the place to learn. And, and to be honest, I think I'm going to go back to university just to do that, Alejandro. This is my dream now. So this time around, I'm going to do it right. Because if I make a mistake, I, I like to correct it. Wow. I love that. That's so powerful. So for the people that are listening, Sajin, I would love to reach out and say, hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Um, write to me on, on my cube address, satyan at bankoncube.com. Uh, and I'm on Twitter as well. Bit of a bulky handle, S-A-T-Y underscore seven seven. Uh, happy to hear from anybody. And I hope all of everybody, all of your listeners, especially the hardworking uh, middle-class professionals start their financial freedom journey soon because they deserve it. Amazing. Well, Sajjan, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Same here. Amazing session. Thank you, Alejandro. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts, or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.